You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. In our uh, Cities Advent Catechism, it goes like this. What season are we celebrating? Advent. What is Advent? Advent is the season before Christmas. What kind of season is Advent? Advent is a season of waiting. Where are we waiting? In a land of deep darkness. What are we waiting for? The light to shine on us. What do we do during Advent? Prepare our hearts to welcome Jesus. What do we confess during Advent? Christ has come. Christ will come again. In this sermon, I hope to tie in the beginning of John's gospel to that truth about Advent. Early in each of the gospels, the biblical authors seek to link the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the advent of Jesus with what has come before. So if you think about the gospel of Mark, it opens uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and immediately talks about the prophecies of Isaiah and John the Baptist. The Gospel of Matthew opens with a genealogy which runs back from uh, Jesus through the exile, through David, all the way to Father Abraham. Luke goes a step farther when he gives his genealogy in chapter 5 of his Gospel. He reaches all the way back not to Abraham but to Adam, the son of God. And you might think that's about as far back as you can go. If you ask someone, right, if you come up and say, tell me about your ancestry, tell me where you came from. And they say, well, there was this guy named Adam and there was this lady named Eve and they lived in a garden. And if you, if you go all the way back there, that's about as far back as anyone can go. Or it's about as far back as any human, merely human can go. Not for John. John reaches farther back than Isaiah, than Abraham and Adam. His gospel will go back as far as possible all the way to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those words clearly remind us of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John's words are even more fundamental than Moses's. There's a, there's a way in which If you want to think about the first book of the Bible, you think Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created. The first book, if you're going to go all the way back, is John chapter 1. Moses' words, Moses' beginning speaks of creation, of divine action. God created the heavens and the earth. John reaches behind creation to the divine being, to that which was before creation and made creation possible. We actually see this, I don't know if you, it's harder to see sometimes in the English versions, but the verbs that John uses in this passage are really interesting. So listen carefully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The verb in each of those uh, statements is the to be verb, right? It just means basic existence, just is. But then in verse 3, John begins to speak of things not that just are, but that were made, or literally things that become, things that come to be. 
All things were made through him. It's literally all things became through him. And without him did not anything become that has become. Now that's a mouthful, sounds kind of weird, but it's making a specific point. The fundamental contrast in reality is between being and becoming, things that just are and things that come to be. Eternal, unchanging reality and temporal and changing reality. And in the Old Testament, that contrast is always between the God who is and the world that becomes. The God who is and the world that becomes. That's God's name. I am who I am. And the Old Testament is adamant. There is only one like that. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. The Westminster Catechism says it this way, are there more gods than one? And the answer There is but one only, the living and true God. So in contrast to God in the Bible, there's the world of becoming, the world of change, the world that comes to be, that was created. Now, here's what's striking about the opening of John's gospel, especially in relation to his early Jewish monotheistic, there is only one God audience. John places the word right in the middle of being, right in the middle of the is. The word did not come into being. He did not have a beginning, but he was in the beginning. And the word from the beginning has these two paradoxical features, blows our categories. On the one hand, he was with God, and on the other, he was God. He was God's fellow alongside him, directed toward him, and he is God's own self. And notice at this point that we're saying he, right? The opening verse refers to the word, and you might think the the logos, that's a thing, right? Words are things, not in John's gospel. Verse two makes it explicit. He, the word who was God and is God, was in the beginning with him. Now, when we hear the word, word, we often think of an individual word. That's what probably you think of. That's what I think of is a single, uh, a single word, a single term. But the Greek word logos actually means something more like speech or discourse or message. In, uh, in early Latin translations of this passage, this was translated as sermo, from which we get the word sermon. So, in the beginning was the sermon, and the sermon was with God, and the sermon was God. Puts a little bit different spin. It's not just a single word, but it's a single message with many words, many words flowing from it. And here also in John's gospel, we can pay attention to those prepositions, right? Look carefully there. The word was in the beginning, that's one preposition. He was with God. And then verse 3, all things were made through him, in, with, and through. They give three windows on who this word is. Because he's in the beginning, we know him to be God, to be divine. But he's not just God, he's with God. Are there more gods than one? No, there's only one, the living and true. But the next question of the Westminster Catechism says, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and these three are one God. 
But not only in and with, the Word is the agent of creation. All things are made through Him. Theologically, when we pull these together, creation is from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Though the Spirit's not mentioned in this particular passage. God creates, we know, through speech. He says, let there be light, and behold, there was light. Or Psalm 33, He spoke, and it came to be. You hear it? It came to be. It became. He spoke, and it became. Who is that word? That speech, that word is this word, the Son. One commentator puts it, Jesus is what God says whenever God speaks. Whenever God speaks, what he says is Jesus. And John emphasizes the point. Look there at that awkward phrase in the end of verse 3. Without him was, that's another preposition, without him was not anything made that was made. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now, that's the kind of sentence, both in English and in Greek, that makes you slow down. What's the point of it? If there's a made thing in the universe, it was made through the Word, which means the Word was not made. If there's something that came to be, it came to be through him. That's why, actually, I think the Gospel of John, if you, you know the bookends of this, you got in the beginning was the Word and, and what we're talking about. The very last verse, if you remember, of the God, John's Gospel is, uh, if every one of Jesus' deeds was written down, I suppose all of the libraries and all of the world, there wouldn't be enough room to contain all the books. Why is that? Because all of the deeds of Jesus is all of reality. Like, the world is his library. Like this is his, these are his books. And every one of us are characters in the story that he is telling. And so the reason that all of Jesus' deeds cannot be contained in the world because this world is the container of all of his deeds because all things were made through him. So we have the eternal word, we have the creating word. In verse four, we see the living word in him was life. And then at that point, we get introduced to a new term, which is particularly important for us here, this advent, light. That life, the life that was in him was the light of men. The words life is man's light. And at that point, we see a shift in this passage. The, the word doesn't show up again till verse 14. The rest of this passage from verse 4 on, 4 to 13, is all about the light. It's all about the light. So, the light shines in the darkness, verse 5. John bears witness about the light, verses 7 and 8. The true light was coming into the world, verse 9, and was rejected by some and received by others, 10 to 13. So what does it mean that the Word is the light of men? It's obviously made in the context of many references to creation, right? In the beginning, all things made through him, light shines in the darkness. That should trigger your memory about let there be light and there was light. So in the first place, I want to suggest that when it says he's the light of men, it means he is the natural light of men, the unavoidable ultimate foundation for everything that every person has ever known or understood. We think, why is that so important? Well, with the help of Lewis, I want to just dwell on that for a minute. 
In Lewis's apologetic works, he was especially known for his clear and compelling use of the argument from reason. This is arguing for God's existence from reason and, uh, and from morality. And he used these especially to kind of refute the most common alternative worldview of our day, which is something like materialism or naturalism. Okay, now what do we mean by that? Naturalism is the belief that nothing supernatural or spiritual exists. There's nothing beyond what can be measured and quantified with our fancy instruments. Nature, matter, that's all there is. And that view of reality is ultimately reductionistic. You have to boil everything down. Like we feel like I have a soul. I, th- I think I do. I feel like I do. Well, no, you don't. You can reduce it down. What you think of as your soul is just sort of the epiphenomena that's spun out by centuries and millennia of evolution. And that includes human reasoning. Human reasoning is just sort of the excess fluff of chemical and electrical reactions in the brain. It doesn't, your thinking, right, under this view, doesn't actually give you access to reality. Like, you think I'm I'm getting in touch with reality when I think. No, you're not. That's an illusion created by millennia of evolution that have tricked you into thinking that's the way you think. You may think your mind has access to truth, but it doesn't. Likewise, same thing's true of our moral standards, right? Moral standards are just evolved social preferences. You mistakenly think that they stand over you and evaluate you, but they're just irrational projections of human values and emotions onto a cosmos that does not care. There's no standard of good or evil that stands over us independent of human thought that can be judged. There's none of that. It's all illusion. That's naturalism. And it is very compelling to people, especially in a technological age, that think, well, yeah, if we can't measure it, it must not exist. Maybe another way to think about it, there's a good illustration of this. Actually, I'll come back to that in a minute. The argument from reason, Lewis says, runs like this. Human thought, your thinking, can't simply be that epiphenomenon fluff. It can't be just about yourself, but it has to give you real insight into reality. Why? Because, he says, he quotes a a famous uh, physicist, I believe, if your mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of chemicals in your brain, of atoms banging around in your head, if that's all your thought is, is just chemicals in motion, then you have no reason to believe that your beliefs are true, including your belief that your brain has chemicals. In other words, there's a kind of self-refutation at the heart of naturalism, a contradiction that Lewis was at pains again and again to point out. It would be like, here's the illustration. I remember this from, I think it was Doug Wilson one time said, if you take a can of Dr. Pepper and you take a can of Diet Coke and you shake them up and then pop them, right? What are they gonna do? They're gonna fizz. And if you set them on the table and then you ask, which one's winning the argument? People would go, what argument? They're just fizzing. And on a naturalistic view, when we're having conversations or when we're arguing and debating, which one is winning the argument? You're not arguing, you're just fizzing. What you call thought is just brain stuff secreting out. And Lewis says, that would be a, that's a really strange thing to argue for because you saw off the branch upon which you sit. 
And so Lewis says, unless reason is an absolute, everything is in ruins. But those who ask me to believe in the naturalistic world picture are asking me to believe that reason is just the unforeseen, unintended byproduct of mindless matter at one stage of its endless and aimless process of becoming. That's just a flat contradiction. They ask me at the same moment to accept a conclusion and then they discredit the only testimony on which that conclusion can be based. That's the sawing off the branch. In other words, Lewis argues, If our reasoning is to be valid at all, if logic and inference and reasoning and thinking and moral judgments are to be valid, then then human thinking always testifies to reason with a capital R, or again, logic points to the logos. The word is the light of men. This means, incidentally, that Lewis believed, and I think this is really important, is that the existence of error is a pointer to God. If you believe that there's truth and error, if you believe there's error, then there must be truth. If you believe that there is evil, then it points to the existence of good. If you believe in the existence of emptiness, of longing and desire, it points to the existence of fullness. And these basic facts about our thinking and our moral desires are utterly inescapable. Like you can't get away from them. Whatever whatever theories people may invent and whatever philosophies they may construct, the reality is is that human beings will go on identifying errors and making moral judgments and seeking satisfaction. They're just going to do it. And every time they do, what do they testify to? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In a sense, we might say that when John says, the word who was in the beginning, who made everything, is the light of men, he was saying the same thing that Paul says in Acts chapter 17, when Paul says, God is actually not far from any of us. Like He's right there with you. How close? as close as your thinking, as close as your desiring, as close as your moral judgment. His life is your life, and that life is the light of men. And so, of course, we can choose to suppress that truth. We can incoherently deny that reality of light. We can try to overcome it. But in this passage, right, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Reality is a stubborn thing, or we might say even better, God is a relentless hunter. He won't let us go. We cannot successfully flee from him, no matter how high we go, how low we go, how far we go. If we're there, he's there. Because all things were made through him. But John's gospel doesn't stop merely at natural light. This is important. So natural light is there. It's this foundation. It can be suppressed but not obliterated. Every time we think, we testify to the inescapable reality that the word who made us is always with us. But John says more. He says the true light which enlightens every man was coming into the world. And this coming into the world is a new thing. 
It's different than the thing that happened when we were made. When you were made, he's just there. He's the light. Now that light that's always with you is coming in a new mode, in a new way into the world. This is what we are marking here in Advent as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. When the true light came into the world, he shed a new kind of light. And this light, follow this, enlightens men by dividing men. That's what the text says. The light comes and it enlightens, enlightens everybody. How does it do that? By dividing them, by separating them. He comes to his own, and if you say, what does that mean? Who are his own? And it's like, well, everything's his own. That was the point of verse three. Everything that was made belongs to him. So everything that was made belongs to him. He came to his own, to his own house, and then his own household. Now we're zeroing in, likely a reference to the Jewish people, God's people, Israel. His own people did not receive him. They rejected him. But then we think, okay, well, that's odd, that's strange if everyone rejects him, but not everyone does reject him. Instead, some did receive him. Some did believe in his name. And you say, well, how did that happen? Why did some receive and some not? Why did some reject and some embrace? Well, to answer that question, we might jump ahead to John chapter 3. If you have a Bible and you want to flip it, you can. End of John, or middle of John chapter 3, verse 19 to 21 Jesus talking, and he says, this is the judgment. Notice the similarities to John chapter 1. The light has come into the world. Follow it. There's the connection. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, follow that logic there. Why did some who dwelt in darkness reject the light when it came? Because they loved the darkness. Why did they love the darkness? Because their deeds were evil. They hated the light because they hated the exposure that the light brought. They wrapped themselves in darkness to hide from the light. So then, here's what we have. We have the Word, God's eternal message, His sermon, who was with God and is God. And through Him, God makes everything. The life of the Word is the inescapable, natural light of men shining into our darkness with unavoidable brightness. And then on top of that, that same light, that true light, comes into the world and enlightens men by dividing men into those who recognize and love him and those who don't. That's the, that's the text. Now, what I want to do in the remainder of our time is press it home, okay, for us, very practically. That can, I, I get, there's ways in which this, this part of the Gospel of John, beginning was the word, all that kind of stuff, can feel a little bit abstract. It can be a little bit... Um, complicated. So let's bring it home. Let's bring it home to our lives here in Advent. Here we are in a land of deep darkness. So what should we do with what we've just seen in John 1? First thing is I want to offer an encouragement to all of you in this room, which is not everybody, I don't think, but everybody at some point will probably be here. 
Anyone here who is aware of their darkness, who feels it and goes, there's darkness. There's darkness, there's, there's doubt, there's sin, there's the burden of darkness that's kind of hanging on you. I just want to say, and, and because of that, you can see, you can begin to think, is the light even a thing? Just as the existence of error points to the reality of truth, just as the existence of evil points to the reality of goodness, just as the fact of emptiness and desire points to the reality of fullness and satisfaction, so also the fact that we have a name for darkness means that we were made for the light. Let me say it again. The fact that we have a name for darkness means that we were made for the light. In the land of the blind, they have no word for darkness nor for light. It would be meaningless to them. And so if you feel the weight of darkness upon you this Advent, I want you to take heart. That weight that you feel is testifying to you. It's saying to your soul, you were made for the light and that light is your life. That's number one. Second, I want to give a simple exhortation. We didn't get to this passage in the first part. Now here it is. I want us to be like John. John the baptizer here. He's not called that. If you ever noticed that in the gospel of John, in all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, he's called John the Baptist. In the gospel of John, he's just called John. It's part of the reason we think it was written by John because only he could say John and everybody would go the other one, right? John, we're told here, was not the light. He's not the light, right? There came a man sent from God. He's not the light. Just get that clear. He's, so the true light's coming in, but he's not it. And throughout this gospel, that's what John says over and over again. He says things like this. I'm not the Christ. People are coming, hey, you the Christ? Not him. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Or later, I, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices when the bridegroom comes. He must increase, I must decrease. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. In John's gospel, if you look down in chapter 1, verse 23, the, John the Baptist says, I am not. You get that? Because it's very stark. Jesus says, I am, and John says, I am not. Okay, you got that? Okay. Let's be like John. Let's be like John. What does John do here? Well, he's not the light, but he does bear witness about the light. He points to the light, and he does that so that all might believe in the true light that is coming into the world through him. He wants to be a means of belief in the light. That's John's aim. That's what he testifies to. John, in other words, here you go, John is the apostle of Advent. He's sent ahead to say he's coming. He's sent ahead to say he's coming. John is the apostle of Advent. And I'm saying to you, let's all be like John. 
How would that, what does that mean? Press that into the corners a bit. So in your homes, this Advent, are you bearing witness to the light? Parents, there's parents here. Are you pointing your kids to the light or are you driving them into the darkness? Like in our Advent catechism, right, we say, what do we do during Advent? Prepare our hearts to welcome Jesus, okay? Are you preparing your kids to welcome Jesus or are you preparing them to avoid you? In all the hustle and bustle of Christmas preparations, you have your eye on the ball? Are you communicating the brightness of God's smile to your kids or the darkness of his exasperated and frustrated frown? Like it's a, it's a tragedy, and I say this, this is particularly important at this time of year, and it's only the beginning of Advent, so you got time to course correct, okay? Whatever happened over the Thanksgiving holiday, Black Friday and Saturday, when you started pulling those decorations out and all of that, whatever happened there, you got a you got chance here to like course correct here. It's a tragedy when in our efforts to do good things for our people, we torch our relationships with our people. Like, is there anything more tragic than that? I'm gonna try to do good for my family and in the process, I'm gonna absolutely wreck my relationship with my family. Dad, here's how you do it. You do it by working your tail off in order to provide while forgetting that the first way that you bear witness to the light is by your glad time and attention with your people. Mom, here's how you do it. You torch the relationship by forgetting that decorations are made for people, not people for decorations. Your vision for your holiday home, shaped by Instagram and other people's expectations, can be a burden to your family that keeps them from seeing the light. Now, John here isn't just the light. He's also the voice. He's, it's not that he's not the light. He's the voice. And so here, here, here's another way to think about it. If you're a voice, we're going to be a voice like John, crying in the wilderness, in the darkness, testifying to the light. Here's my question. What does your voice say? Maybe I'll ask it a little bit more narrowly. What does your tone of voice say? Husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, friends, roommates, how's that tone of voice going for you in Advent? Is it making straight the way of the Lord so that your spouse or your sibling or your friend or your roommate can see the light better? Your voice made it possible for them to see the light better or is your voice throwing up roadblocks to the light left and right? You're practical. Kids, so kids, how do you speak? When you speak to your, your parents, is it respectful? Is it, is it honorable? Do you show honor to them by the way that you speak to your parents? If you don't, kids, I mean this, you're throwing up a roadblock for your parents to see the light. Husbands, you speak to your wife, how's that tone? Exasperated? Harsh? Wives, how's that tone? Disrespectful? 
condescending when you speak to your husband? Roommates, friends, when you talk to each other, is it frustration and dismissal and indifference and apathy? Or for all of us, is it, can we point people to the light by the way that we speak? Kind, patient, thoughtful, strong, clear, full of joy and delight in the light and in our people. How's your voice this Christmas? I want to keep pressing in. I'm not done. John's aim is to make straight the way of the Lord. Okay, and then we go back to that Isaiah passage. It's by laying low the mountains and raising up the valleys, right? So you get the image in your head when you think about John is he's like mountains might keep you from seeing the glory, of, the glory of the Lord's about to be revealed. True light is coming into the world. You follow that? And so John's going, the mountain might get in the way or you might be down in a valley and you can't see over. So solution, John says, is I'm coming with a voice and I'm laying low the mountain and I'm raising up the valley so that it's nice and flat like West Texas where I grew up and man, you can see the sky. Got that? Like there's one thing, I, I joke, West Texas is the place where God ran out of ideas. Okay? Because it's just like flat as far as the eye can see. All you get is sky. But I'll tell you what, if the glory of the Lord chooses to be revealed in West Texas, they will see it coming for hundreds of miles. Okay, that's the image. You got that image? Okay. Now, what's the point? Like, when, when you actually put, what did John do? He came preaching repentance and restored relationships. Turning the hearts of the, the sons back to the father and the fathers to the sons. He came to say, you need to repent and you need to be restored because that's, that's what it means to lay low the mountains and to raise up the valleys. It's not about physical geography. It's about our hearts and our relationships. So, be like John. How are those relationships? Husbands, wives, parents, kids, brothers, sisters, friends, and roommates, how are those relationships this Advent? Like when I ask that question, when I say, how are those relationships? Did a name pop into your head? You got a face that all of a sudden went there? If so, if you had a name or a face of, of a place of tension in a relationship that's a problem right now, if you just had that, I want to say that is absolutely great news. The light is shining in the darkness. Don't try to overcome it. When the light comes into the world, come to the light. Don't love the darkness and reject the light. Don't keep the evil deeds hidden. Repent of them and then bear fruit in keeping with it. So one way, one way that we prepare our hearts to welcome Jesus is by doing what is true and showing that our deeds have been carried out in God. That's what John says. Those who receive the light and believe in his name are given this amazing privilege, amazing privilege. He gave them the right and the privilege to become children of God, not, born not of human will or decision or blood, not of blood, not of natural procreation. You have the right to be born a child of God, a, a child of God born of God so that all your deeds are done in him and he's glorified in them. So finally, what does it mean to receive him? This is last application here, which brings us to the table. Receive him as what? As many as received him and believed in his name, what does that mean to receive him? Well, in this passage, it means receiving him as the word, as the speech and message of God. 
to us. It means receiving him as light and as life. And it means receiving him as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth, which is what this table is all about. The word who was in the beginning, the word who was with God and is God, the eternal creating word became flesh and dwelt among us. The true light came into the world and he is still coming into the world. At this table, we see the true light in simple bread and simple wine. And in doing that and believing in his name at this table, we receive him as true bread, as true drink. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do ask and I pray that as the light shines, the darkness would not overcome it. May that be true of everyone here. May we not love darkness so much that we refuse to come into the light. But instead, Lord, in relation to you and in relation to each other, would you put things right? Would you make our deeds true? Would you cause the new birth where that new birth has not yet happened so that all of us have hearts prepared to welcome Jesus and we don't have to wait for Christmas Day even now, Lord. May we welcome and receive Jesus, the true light of the world. In his name, amen. amen. Invite the pastors to come for the bread. We'll distribute it to you. It is gluten-free. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.